Hello everybody, this is our sixth sermon looking at the Sermon on the Mount and today we're looking at Matthew 6 verses 1 to 18 and the topic is true piety. This week I received a request to go and preach in Malawi. Seriously, an email came through the church website telling me that a church out there in Africa had been perusing our website, listening to our sermons and wanted to make me an invitation. They hoped that I will pray about whether I could go out there and offer some training to new Christians, ministers and churches. Now, of course, as soon as I read this, I felt very flattered. This was unexpected before thinking through any of the practical implications for a man who is terrified of flying. This made me feel good inside. But then very quickly came another thought. Is this for real? Isn't it a sad indictment on our world today that when we receive a possible email from our brothers and sisters in Africa, we immediately doubt it. We are so used to scam emails asking for money that we now naturally distrust them. An email out of the blue from Africa is very rarely what it appears. Seemingly the online integrity of a whole continent has been damaged by the selfish actions of a few. Now, just so you know, Jim is doing a bit of research to see if he can find out more about the sender and he will keep you updated. If it is for real, a church partnership of some form would be very exciting. But for the purpose of this sermon, this email illustrates to us the importance of integrity. The need for people to really believe what they hear, see and read from us. Funnily enough, Jesus never spoke about emails from Africa, but he did speak powerfully about situations where people were not what they seemed. And his call was clear. He wanted all his followers to be for real. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount, which climaxed last week, was all about Jesus calling Israel back to being salt and light. They were to stand out so that the world would want to know what made them different, giving them then the chance to speak about God. And that first part finished with a striking instruction to disciples that would enable this high calling. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It was a command, a goal and a promise. The disciples were to live every day striving to become more like God than they were yesterday. It was a goal so comprehensive that it would mean a change in the way they thought, spoke and behaved. Of course, it was a great challenge, but the incentive was there to try because one day they would make it. One day when Jesus returns and his kingdom comes in full, all his followers will be perfected to be just like him. So every day, followers of Jesus are to try and become like God. But here is the link to today's passage. Jesus knows that for that to happen, believers will need to participate in the public life of a religious community. Being with God's people is vital if we want to grow to be more like God. Because it's when we're together 
praising, praying, listening to scripture and serving others that God moulds and shapes our character. Church then is an essential aspect of being a follower of God. It is the training ground. But Jesus also knows that public worship, which is potentially this place of great growth, is also the place of greatest danger in terms of our integrity. Why? Because in public, there are always people watching. In verse 1 of our reading, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, if we perform religious acts just to gain attention from those around us, purely to make people notice and say, wow, what a pious, holy person they are. I wish I was a bit more like them. Then actually we will gain no benefit whatsoever. Attention seeking does not please God. It dismays him. Worship in this way doesn't make us more like God. It doesn't perfect us. It doesn't change our character whatsoever. We remain as selfish and egotistical as ever. Just doing religious rituals is nowhere near enough because for Jesus, our motive really matters. He wants us to become like God on the inside as well as on the outside. He wants us to be for real. So the command to become like God has been given to us all. And that process of transformation takes place first and foremost in the church. But we're going to learn tonight that this only happens if we have integrity, if we act with true piety. In this passage, Jesus challenges us with three stinging examples. Our attitudes are about to be tested in terms of public giving, prayer and fasting. Jesus begins in verses 1 to 4 with giving to the needy. In the Old Testament law, it says this, There will always be poor people in the land, therefore I command you to be open-handed towards the poor and needy. It was there in Deuteronomy 15 for every Jew to see. Poverty was rife in ancient rural society, therefore the people of Israel needed to take seriously their obligation to the poor. The truly spiritual Jew would recognise the plight of the poor and give alms. It was right, it was expected, and above all, it was commanded by God. But Jesus says here, when you give, do not announce it with trumpets. In other words, do not give in a way that makes everyone notice. Do not throw your coins into the trumpet-shaped temple offering boxes so hard that the clanging makes everyone in the whole temple look up. Do not blow your own trumpet and tell everyone how much you give either. Jesus knows that often those who seem the most humanitarian also want the most glory. Of course, he is right. We know ourselves from the recent tragic examples of Jimmy Savile and Lance Armstrong that loud, ostentatious giving can cover up all sorts of bad attitudes and behaviour. But unlike gullible humanity, we cannot fool God. He sees right through pretense. Jesus calls all people engaging in this perilous self-promotion hypocrites. 
Did you know the word hypocrite comes from the Greek term for actors on stage who put on various masks to play different roles? Here then, Jesus is criticising those who put on a mask of generosity that covers up the reality of selfishness and self-importance. These people are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. They are giving so they might be honoured by others. The tragic irony in all this is that the honour, temporary as it is, that they receive from their peers will be all the reward they get because God will give them absolutely nothing. Religious activities with the wrong motives are of no value to him at all. God cares greatly about why we do what we do. To help avoid this pitfall then, Jesus instructs his followers to keep their giving secret. It's not that they should stop giving to the poor, but that they should have such purity of concern for them that they have no self-awareness as they give. Their left hand must not know what their right hand is doing. In other words, it does not matter whether anyone ever knows if you have done a good deed or not, because your Father in heaven will have seen it. More than that, he'll reward this giving done in secret. Now, that doesn't mean he will shower us with more money or bless us with material riches. It doesn't mean that sort of reward at all. It means in turn for our giving, he will make us more like Jesus. He will grant us that inner righteousness that we are striving for every day. He will change our character. He will bring us closer to the perfection that we will have for all eternity. He will make us real. The reward is one of character and integrity, and that reward is far greater than any honour a human peer can bestow. The next aspect of religious life that Jesus takes on in verses 5 to 15 is prayer. At that time, Jesus prayed at set hours, three times a day, morning, afternoon and evening. As the hours came round, the faithful would stop what they were doing, wherever they were doing it, and begin to pray. Now, of course, this could be done either discreetly or in full pretentious display, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that some people were sure to find themselves at these hours, either in the synagogue or on the street corner, where everyone could see them. Again, the motivation to pray was not devotion to God, but a selfish desire for public recognition and respect. But Jesus says this type of hypocritical prayer receives the same reward as that for hypocritical giving. It may win the acclaim of fickle peers, but it would receive no reward whatsoever from God. There would be none of that change of character, no becoming more like Jesus, as the people should be striving for. So again, in verse 6, Jesus gives an alternative. Instead of creating a scene when praying, followers of his should go into their inner room to pray. In other words, they should pray in privacy, where all the focus is on intimacy with God, not on what other people might think. Now, this does not mean that all corporate prayer is wrong. Clearly, there is a place for that as well. But when we do it, we need to watch our motives. Don't attend prayer meetings because you want people to know that you've been and look upon you with favour. Most of the time, the rule is that the less people who know you pray, the better. 
It is sincere communion that the Father rewards. To heighten this sense of importance on the intimacy of our prayers, Jesus goes on to contrast the type of prayer he has in mind with the prayer of the pagans. Back then, the pagans chanted their prayers. Their prayers were made up of multiple formulaic words strung together, long, complicated streams of magic words that they were to repeat over and over again. And these repeated abracadabras were all said in their anxiety to coerce some god or goddess to be favourable towards them. Jesus describes this attempted manipulation of the gods through ritual as babbling. If you want an example, look at the story of Elijah when he challenged the prophets of Baal to a jewel of fire on top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. They chanted the same words, O Baal, answer us! O Baal, answer us! for three hours while they danced and writhed about. This manipulative, coercive prayer was all for the pagans' own gain. And as is seen in the story of Elijah, it gains no reward at all. No fire fell that day. In fact, most of the Baal prophets ended up dead. In verse 7, Jesus says we're not to pray like that. The Father is always ready to listen to us. He is aware of his children's needs even before we ask. And besides, the Father cannot be manipulated. So Jesus spells out an understanding of prayer that is as much about changing us our character, our will, our values, even as we seek God's response to our problems and ask him to act for us. There is then a better way than hypocritical showy prayers of display. There is a better way than manipulative babbling. Instead, believers should strive for intimate communion with God. In the quiet and in privacy, we should pray, Our Father, a very personal address. We should seek his kingdom and his will to be done, find out what's on his agenda and make it our own. Yes, we should ask for provision, but in full trust that he will provide, not in manipulation. Ask for one day's bread at a time, knowing that tomorrow will look after itself. We should confess our sins and be ready to forgive others. In other words, cultivate an attitude of humility where we know we depend on God and be nurturing an open heart towards others. After all, in verses 14 and 15, it says that if our heart is too hard to forgive someone else, it will be too hard to receive forgiveness from God as well. In prayer, we should place our dependence on God for all the trials, tests and temptations to come. In other words, in prayer, we should become alert to the fact that we're in a spiritual battle and we should place ourselves firmly on God's side. This is the type of prayer Jesus commands. Quiet, humble, intimate devotion is the prayer God wants. This is the type of prayer that will give a reward. This is the type of prayer that will make us more like him. Change of character is the greatest reward to prayer and is exactly what the Lord's Prayer is designed to bring about. If we regularly pray in this pattern, we will become more real. So after dealing with public giving and praying, Jesus moves on in verses 16 to 18 to his final condemnation of hypocritical religious practice. He takes on fasting. 
Again, some were fasting to get recognition. Again, Jesus says the limited acclaim of their peers will be all the reward they get because it doesn't impress God one little bit. In the Old Testament, fasting was only commanded for one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, when the people were to humble themselves and cleanse the temple. But as time passed, the people began to do it voluntarily at other times for a whole host of good reasons. They fasted to express repentance, to seek God's mercy, to call for help in times of crisis and mourning. Even Jesus himself fasted to focus his mind and prepare himself for ministry. So fasting in itself is not wrong, and one done properly can be an aid to focus prayer. But, and it's a big but, we need to be aware that whenever we deny ourselves something, there is always a great danger of attention-seeking, acting pious to gain the respect of others. In Jesus' day, that was exactly what was going on. The Pharisees fasted twice a week as part of their rigorous approach to God, but Jesus says they were getting it all wrong. Why? Because as they fasted, they were disfiguring their faces to intentionally publicise the hardships of their fasting. They wore a sombre, holier-than-thou expression. They remained ungroomed and allowed their hair to go unkempt. They sometimes poured ashes on their heads. They wanted to be pitiful to look at, but not unrecognisable, because they wanted everyone to take notice. In truth, their fasting had degenerated into deception. So Jesus, one final time, lays out the alternative. He tells his disciples that when they fast... They should put oil on their heads and wash their faces. In other words, they had to scrub up well as if they were going out for the evening. When they fast, they were to celebrate and enjoy life in such a way that no one would know they were fasting. They were not to make a public display which destroys all the spiritual value of fasting. Their fasting is only to be seen by God. And he'll reward this true piety, not with copious material blessing, but with something far greater. They will finish their fast more like Jesus than when they began it. They will be further prepared for the eternal kingdom of God. What greater reward could there possibly be than that? As we reach the end of this passage, hopefully we can all see that the message is really very simple. God wants us all to strive to become more like him, to be more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. And much of that gradual transformation will take place through the church, through the praise, prayer, listening to scripture and service of believers gathered together. But when meeting together, there are many dangers because people are watching. God does not want the onlooking world to naturally doubt us, just as we do emails from Africa. He wants them to see Jesus through us and then wants them to come to know him for themselves. God wants us then to be real. To him, what we are in private is what we really are. Let's not kid ourselves. God knows what we're like when no one else is watching. He knows our motives. So we need to strive to be people of integrity. But the good news is this. If we worship God with true piety, that transformation to be like him really will continue to take place. <laughs>